So, Will. Yeah? I learned recently one of the most damning criticisms I've ever given a movie. (laughs) What was that? I walked out of a film recently and said, oh god, that was so long. And you responded to me, that was under 90 minutes. It was like exactly 90 minutes. Yeah, I sat through 90 minutes of a movie and thought it had taken over two hours. I mean, it felt like it had taken two hours. It felt like it had taken an hour 25 minutes into that movie. By the way, we're talking about Isn't It Romantic? Yeah, it's a movie where in the first hour of this 90 minute movie they managed to accomplish what should be done in 10 minutes maybe half an hour of a movie like establish the character's real world then introduce the new world and give the new rules and then have a plot that should be about you know the first third of a movie so this is the movie in which rebel wilson crashes into a pipe and falls into a rom-com world bright colors a dance number you can't curse stuff like that and here's the deal i think you're maybe being a little bit hard on this movie because I think it knows its audience very well. There's a point in this movie where Rebel Wilson looks at the sky and shouts, how do I get to the end? And I was thinking that too. It totally understood me about 30 minutes into the movie. I was disappointed, to say the least, in this film. I was hoping for a fun time. Granted, there were a couple jokes that landed. It wasn't like an entire waste of time. But if I leave a movie that is 90 minutes and think, wow, that was so long, something's not right. I mean, ultimately, the problem with the movie is that there are no stakes because the movie never really convinces you in that interminable opening that Rebel Wilson should want to get back to her normal life. You know, you can show a shitty, realistic New York and make it have charms, but they didn't give any charm to her real life. It just seemed crappy. It just sucked. There was no reason for me to root for her to get back to her real life, which was her driving goal. Allegedly, a lot of the momentum of the movie, such as it is, is just driven by, here's the thing that happens now. Yeah, it was honestly hard to understand the motivations of any character. There really weren't any. That's the problem. Uh, Did you see anything else recently, though? I'm trying to think of any other movies I watched recently. I saw Spider-Man, but that was like a month ago. I saw Alita Battle Angel a couple weeks ago. That's a movie that doesn't quite work but all of the not working together makes a thing that almost does okay it's like kind of like latter day wachowski-ish where it's just throwing a million things at the wall and just letting the rule of cool go along like if it looks cool enough just roll with it sometimes literally roll with it because there's like cyborg roller derby that plays a big role in the movie and It keeps skipping along, like, the timeline's not super clear. There's a dictatorship that's in a city floating above the sky, and there are, like, bounty hunters going around taking care of lawbreakers. It's just, like, kind of cool cyborg stuff going all over the place, and it's using 3D realistic CGI avatar kind of stuff throughout the movie. And there's this incredible moment at the end of the movie, because this is a movie that is not being a hit. It's doing okay, but it's doing nowhere near what it needs to do to make back what it costs to make. Yeah. And there's a moment at the end where Alita, the robot girl, has risen up through the ranks of Murder Ball Roller Derby, and she's now like the people's champion, and she rides up to the top of this cliff because there are cliffs in the arena, 
And she pulls out her katana because she has like a super powered katana. At one point, she was feeling very deeply. And so she had a single tear drop down her face. And to show that she was angry about that feeling, she sliced it in half with her katana. Her tear? Yes. And then in this moment, she rides up to this cliff and like Babe Ruth pointing his bat at the rafters to announce he's going to hit a home run. She pulls out her sword, points it at the floating city in the sky. End of movie. This movie sounds so weird. It is very weird. I still kind of feel like I should watch it. Here's the deal. We all know I'm in for swinging for the fences, messy genre stuff. It's true. We both liked uh, Mortal Engines. Yeah, this is not as good as Mortal Engines, I don't think. But it's still playing in some pretty cool territory. I can't believe we got two giant box office boondoggles boondoggles in like two months it's impressive i'm honestly surprised mortal engines got a december release and didn't get pushed back to like february i mean i guess they had hopes they had aquaman the next week that's true i wonder if it would have done better if aquaman wasn't the next week probably not i don't think people knew about it which is weird because i saw that trailer a lot i don't think it had much of a marketing presence outside of theaters though uh let's see what the final box office was oh my god well, guess what the domestic gross was. For Mortal Engines? Yeah, do you know? Can you tell me what the opening weekend was? I think it was like seven or something. Yeah, opening weekend was seven. Okay, so I think final domestic box office would have been like, did they make it to 30, 35? 16. What? $16 million. There was a 76.8% drop. Holy cow. To week two. Oh my gosh, that's horrible. It made $82 million worldwide. Oh my gosh. It's going to go down as one of the biggest flops in history. So we're never going to get the expanded municipal Darwinism universe. No. Ugh. I'm not getting Mortal Engines Origins Shrike. I would watch that. That'd be awesome. Shrike, the Green Terminator. I'm just like, I can't get over how much money that movie made. So little. All right. Well, speaking of little things, let's talk about a little tramp. Oh, what what a transition there. It's what I do. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the most pressing, urgent, important issues of our day. Specifically, does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable? Is anyone even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is the main plot or a one-scene flirtation. Either way, we're going to dig in, we're going to see what's there, we're going to check even if they never speak to each other. Although, if they use title cards, maybe they kind of do. Anyway, this is our mission, we're going to find it out, we're going to keep doing it. This week, we're doing our first kinda silent, mostly silent film, Charlie Chaplin's 1936 film, Modern Times. So this is a movie in which, except for dialogue carried over machines, it is a classic silent film. I like that touch a lot, that we do hear voices, but it's all over telephone screens or from recordings or things like that. This movie is also interesting because it's made in a time when only talkies are being made. 1936. And it's shot it sounds weird it's like shot like a talkie except for the tramp 
And the frame rate. Yeah, but what I mean is, like, every actor, every character is made up like you'd see in a talkie. They're costumed like you'd see in a talkie. Everyone kind of acts as they would in a talkie. Where there's less exaggerated movement. Right, except for the tramp who has full, like, silent motion, early 1900s makeup on, walks in his weird way. So it really shows how different he is. And, like, it really stands out. I thought it was a really interesting movie in that way. In a way, it is a reflection of Chaplin's own concern about where he fits in in the film industry at this point. Because just like The Tramp doesn't really fit in in the world of modern times, by 1936, it's been almost a decade since the first sound movie, The Jazz Singer, and Chaplin isn't sure there's really a future for silent film, which is where he made his career. This is his first movie in five years. His previous one was City Lights in 1931, and he took five years off in part because he was really worried that there wasn't a future for silent film and he winds up going on this world tour after that he spent some time in europe where he met gandhi and talked about industrialization he spent some time in japan where he was almost assassinated what there was this coup against the japanese government by ultra conservatives and they were hoping to make japan strong in part by provoking a war with the united states and they thought killing charlie chaplin might help with that Okay. So he goes on this trip around the world and eventually settles back in with the idea to make modern times based on what he saw of the Depression, particularly in Europe, and the struggles of workers there. I can definitely see that because there's definitely more European-style full communist marches. Yes, although those would have been more common in the United States in the first couple decades of the 20th century. Yeah, I guess in 36 still. I don't know, because they kept calling them communists more than socialists. That becomes more common after the Russian Revolution, but you definitely still have active communists in the U.S. Their power is basically broken in the U.S. because the American Communist Party splits on whether to join the common turn. Oh, When does that happen? I can't remember right now. I don't know what year it happens in the U.S., but it's established in the early 30s after Stalin takes over. Okay. What I don't understand, unrelated to all this, is the word gammon ever used in English language? So it is a real word. Okay. It refers to a street urchin. Okay. So it's worth noting that our main characters in this movie are not credited with any named characters. Our lead female, played by Paulette Goddard, is credited as the gammon, which mm-hmm. means a street urchin. And Chaplin, although he's playing the character of the tramp, is credited as a factory worker. Right. Because he's not a tramp at the start of the movie. Right. He's a factory worker. He's a factory worker. But I find it interesting that their characters are synonyms. Meant to be. I suppose that's true. Yeah. And Chaplin and Godard are actually in a relationship when this movie is being made. Are they married at this point or are they just... They're not. Okay. After this, they go on a trip to China and they wind up getting married in Guangzhou. And they stay together for about seven years. She's also the female lead of The Great Dictator. And they divorce in 1942. And then is that when he marries a teenager? I'm not sure the exact sequence of his marriages. Yeah. But even with Godard, she's 21 years younger than he is. Yeah. He's a creep. Yeah. Chaplin, he's a very funny guy, but he's a pretty creepy guy. She's 21 when they start dating. How old is he? 42. Ugh, gross. He definitely is um, of questionable moral character in general. For sure. So another interesting thing about this movie is that it's actually originally developed as a talkie. Mm-hmm. He actually wrote a script and experimented with some sound scenes, but he was really worried that audiences wouldn't respond to the tramp if they could hear his voice. 
And so he eventually decided not to do that, also because he thought that a talkie would alienate foreign audiences, and Chaplin had a big foreign following. And that's something I had never really thought about in terms of the transition from silent to sound film, that before sound, you can just change the language on title cards and transfer movies very easily. Yeah, I never thought about that part. Like, film was almost much more universal in the silent era, because title cards, I guess... You see that they're official translations, so I assume that some work was put into it. Like, there must have been official versions versus pirated versions, in a way. Oh, I'm sure. But it's so much easier. Yeah. And it's worth noting, this does become the first film in which Chaplin's voice is heard when he sings in the sequence at the nightclub, which we'll talk about later. Right. And I didn't even know... If that was him, because who knows what Chaplin sounds like. Right, exactly. Unless you're watching The Great Dictator, you're not really used to hearing Chaplin. Yeah, we should watch that. It's a good movie. I haven't seen it before. It's Um, worth noting that, like The Great Dictator, this movie is also banned in Nazi Germany. In this case, the official reason is because of the film's communist tendencies, which I think are hard to argue with. But if you read press from the time, like the New York Times review of the movie from 1936, talks about how some people were speculating that it was banned because Chaplin's mustache looked too much like Hitler's, and they didn't want a buffoonish Hitler bopping around on screen. I would buy either of those. I buy both, frankly. Yeah, I don't think it's a one or the other situation. Definitely, um, pro-labor film. Oh, absolutely. The factory owners and upper management are not treated kindly. I love the factory owner character in this movie. Oh, yeah, he's, he's so, so great. great. The first time we see him, he's in his office, like, just doing a puzzle on his desk while all the factory workers are working themselves to death on the floor below. He brings in some guys who are offering to sell him a machine that can have employees eat their lunch faster by just shoving food in their faces. So that they don't have to stop to eat their lunch. Right, and... He's got these view screens all over the place so he can tell employees to get back to work, including in the bathrooms. It's such a prescient vision of management surveillance, but is also played really funnily without taking away how uncomfortable that is. Yeah, this is definitely at a time when you would not have the idea of your boss being able to see you wherever you are. Like, the idea of... Two-way video communication is still very sci-fi at the time, I'm guessing. I mean, television itself is very new. Yeah, so the idea that a boss would be able to look into the bathroom on a television screen, I'm guessing that's something almost like a brain chip surveillance would be today. Like, in terms of the invasiveness of it, the feeling of your boss being able to see you. Like, now, you know, at our works, we have cameras, places, and your boss could probably watch you from the back office. But at that time, the idea that your boss could just look at a screen and see everyone in the company must have seemed horrifying. So it's very interesting to watch that. And that one shirtless guy who's responsible for everything that the boss says, who is he? Like, that's the thing I was most confused by. I think he's like the muscle in the factory because the factory is made up for the most part of these like giant Jack Kirby machines with just levers and dials all over the place. You need a strong guy who can pull these giant levels, turn the giant wheels. The tramp can't do it. He's a tiny little dude. Yeah, but he goes and pulls all of the levers fine once he has his mental breakdown. Well, that's what he needed. So... That guy was so confusing. It's this big, muscly, shirtless guy with a giant butt and might be barefoot. Like, he and might he be. Just, he just stands there and follows all the orders of the boss in terms of, like, controlling the speed of his factory lines and stuff like that. It's so bizarre to me, that character. I feel like you could put anybody in that factory and I would believe it. 
Yeah, but it's why just is a he... weird place. It's very weird. But why is he shirtless and shoeless? Because he's really sweaty. It was so distracting. Because <laughs> he's the only one. All the other like actual factory workers are clothed as you would be in a factory. He reminds me of the dude from Raiders of the Lost Ark who's working on the airplane that Indy has to fight while Marion is getting the plane started. And it's just the two of them punching each other and he's huge and shirtless for some reason. Oh, that guy. Yeah, I remember that scene. Very much that vibe. Yeah, it's the same dude. Yeah. What if it was? It's 1936. It could be the same dude. Oh, God. What if they actually time traveled for that? That'd be amazing. Whoa. Um, so we've basically covered the first five minutes of this movie. Yeah, the first chunk of this movie doesn't have anything to do with romance. Do you want to talk about anything else here? Do you want to talk about the factory line? Yeah, I guess we should probably mention that the factory line is one of the most influential scenes of this this film. This is one of those weird movies that you watch, and, like, every couple of minutes you're like, oh, that's where that's from. Yeah, like... The most famous version is in I Love Lucy, or the most famous scenes is Lucy and Ethel on a factory line wrapping chocolates, and the chocolates keep going faster and faster and faster. And here we've got the tramp tightening two screws, just doing it over and over again, to the point that even when he's not doing it, his hands are so caught in the motion that he's doing it anyway and bumping into people. Right. And so every time he sneezes or anything like that, you see him have to run down the line and catch himself back up. So that's actually a reason that I like this more than the I Love Lucy version, which is great. More than the Donald Duck in Dorfiro's face, which is a classic. What I like about this one is that all of the reasons the tramp falls behind on the assembly line are because of human things. He sneezes. He has to scratch his forehead. He wants to talk to the boss to ask him a question. All of these things are the ones that suddenly now he has to rush to catch up for being a person, because the factory doesn't care that he is a person and not just another machine. Whereas in Lucy and Donald Duck, we're getting the comedy from the fact that it's just accelerating on its own. Yeah, and that's, you know, the difference that this movie is trying to make. The point of the factory machinery is not taking humanity into account and they're being reduced to cogs in a machine, versus I Love Lucy just trying to make you laugh. And it works. I love that episode. That episode is one of the best episodes, like start to finish, for sure. So the factory part is about the first, under a third maybe, because then he goes to jail. Right. So he gets gets arrested. Well, he gets fired from the factory because he's not working fast enough. And then he's wandering through the streets, just kind of like waving a little flag he has when a communist protest comes up behind him. And so he winds up looking like the organizer of this protest. Yeah. And he gets arrested as a communist. Right. And then in jail, he stops an attempted jail escape because he's high on cocaine. He's high on nose candy. Let's be clear. He's high on a lot of nose candy. This is a code movie. It's unbelievable they got that through. Yeah, so a fellow prisoner hides nose candy inside a salt shaker and the tramp just starts pouring it over everything and he shakes it to the point where it's on himself and you see him like wipe his nose with his hand leaving trails of nose candy and he just starts getting crazier and crazier to the point where i was watching this and i was like that is enough cocaine where he would be dead he's such a small guy he's so small and just pounding this cocaine back on his food it's a nice touch that his clothes are a little too big to make him look even smaller Right. And that's one of the signatures of The Tramp. He was a character in a bunch of silent short films and and films that Chaplin had put together over years, uh, originally inspired by vaudeville acts. 
And it also is helped by the fact that he gets just picked up by people many times. Yes. Which I just love. I never get tired of seeing, like, a big shirtless dude or a robber or something like that just pick up the tramp and move him somewhere. Yeah, that definitely helps to highlight how tiny Chaplin is. A thing that's made even funnier by the projection choices in this movie. It's shot at what's referred to as silent speed, 18 frames per second, which is why silent film looks a little bit jerky. It doesn't have as many images as we're used to seeing, but they projected it at 24 frames per second so that the images hold for a little bit longer before cutting over, which makes our eye get a little bit used to it before it suddenly jerks, and it makes all of the fast movements, especially on the factory line when there's a fight, something like that, look even more frenetic. Yeah, it's very disconcerting in a way, where it will just be so normal at a time and something happens that your eye just freaks out in a way, but you don't understand why what's happening. Your brain kind of is just like, something is wrong in your head. And I like that touch in the movie. Me too. This Uh, is very much a Chaplin project. He wrote it, he directed it, he composed the music, he was the Foley artist for it, he made all the sound effects himself. So, like, when there's the stomachs gurgling in jail, that was him blowing bubbles into a pail of water. That was an interesting scene, because I didn't really get it. It was a strange one. Yeah, that felt very much like just a dumb joke. There is an element to this movie that kind of feels like a bunch of sketches kind of stitched together. I thought that, too. Where it could almost be it. several short films. It could. And that scene itself just felt like a three-minute thing that you would watch of just a person with a tummy gurgling next to a Sitting fancy next to a, lady. A fancy lady whose stomach is also gurgling, and they're both trying to pretend that's not the case. Right. So... After jail, oh, first he prevents the robbery and then gets treated well in jail for the first time in his life, we're led to believe. Yeah, it looks like he's just living it up in jail. He's got posters on the wall. He's chilling, reading a book. He doesn't have a cellmate. He's having a great time. But then he's pardoned and he asks if he could stay longer. And they tell him no, and they send him out on the street. And this is where he first starts to encounter the gammon, who we've seen a couple of times. At the start of the movie, her father was, I think, hit by a car? Yeah. And so she and her siblings were orphaned. They were made wards of the state. But she's just, like, going off, having a grand time. She's, like, stealing bananas from boats and tossing them to children. And what we see here is that she steals a loaf of bread from a truck. We know she and her siblings are pretty poor in terms of their situation. But she gets caught while she's stealing this loaf of bread by an old lady who's a snitch. Yeah, what a narc. I did not... I was so unimpressed with how this woman was acting especially because it's the depression yeah it's the depression she not only like snitches on her but then when the tramp tries to take the fall for the woman that comes up and is still just like no arrest that one too yeah so our first point is the meeting between the gammon and the tramp you are a thief i stole a loaf of you at the house where he, like Mark said, takes the fall for her. He confesses to the police. He's like, I'm the one who took the bread. And then because he keeps he's trying to get back to jail. Right. Like, it's not just him being noble. He is looking for a reason to go back to jail. And so then he keeps doing other things to try to get himself arrested, where, like, he'll go into a diner, order a ton of food, and then be like, whoops, I have no money to pay. And then, like, waving down cops, like, come arrest me. I have not paid my bill. Yeah. Which he does that after he was arrested already for something. Well, 
He gets caught by the police, and then the narc lady is like, no, it's that woman. So the police leave to go get the lady, and then he goes back and is like, oh, look at me taking all these cigars and handing them out. Whoops, I cannot pay for these cigars. Oh, that's right. They wind up both getting arrested. Right. Because at I'm this just point, thinking, he has now stolen a bunch of stuff. Yeah, I'm just thinking, this movie actually has, like, fairly short jail sentences for every character. Every title card, it's always like, ten days later. Yeah, so basically he goes to jail for 10 days, but he still has a note from the sheriff saying he's an honorable man that he got for stopping the attempted jailbreak. So he's still able to use that to get new jobs throughout the movie. Right. But we also see some nice flirting there too. Like when they're in the paddy wagon together, he gets up to offer his seat to the gammon. Right. And ends up sitting on the lap of someone who does not like it. Actually though, they don't go to jail here because the paddy wagon tips over and they run out and they run away. Oh, right. I forgot about that part. And so they just kind of run away and they sit on the curb and they're watching this couple at their house. A nice little married couple as the wife is like, oh, goodbye. I'll miss you. Have a good day at work. And the gammon's like, can you imagine us in a little house like that? And the tramp's like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to get us a home even if I have to work for it. Which they keep acting like it's a big statement every time he's like, I'm going to get a job. Which might make more sense if you know him as the tramp. But in this movie, he's introduced as someone who is gainfully employed. He has like four jobs over the course of this movie. Yeah, so I think every time there's like a big dramatic moment like, I will be employed, it must come from everyone being used to seeing him as the tramp more than anything because i was just like yeah you you already have been working to own a home but if you watch something like the kid he's just kind of wandering around being a bum right so this takes us to point number two he gets a job as the night guard at a department store this is fun This is like Home Alone 2 kind of business going on, or like the night scene in Elf. Yeah, so he is pretending to be a good night watchman. He like does all his normal stuff, but as soon as the last person leaves, he locks the door, immediately runs out the employee exit and brings the gammon inside. So they're just going to have a great time in the department store at night, like kids when their parents are out of town. So they use rollerblades on the toy section. Which is horrifying. They're rollerblading around on like the third floor, which has has no railing down to a big atrium. He keeps almost falling over. Yeah. It's horrifying and funny. Yes, he is um, blindfolded too. And so the gamut is freaking out, but she doesn't know how to rollerblade as She's well as very the bad tramp at it. does. So, but then they... Um, they look at some toys. There's a stuffed Mickey Mouse. Yeah. Very cute. I would like that stuffed Mickey Mouse. Yeah, it's what the old ones looked like. And yeah. this is, again, new. It, Mickey Mouse is less than 10 years old. It's worth noting Walt Disney and Charlie Chaplin were big admirers of one another. And at the premiere of Modern Times, they premiered a new Mickey Mouse cartoon ahead of it that ended with a note expressing the admiration of Walt Disney and Mickey Mouse for Chaplin's work. That's cute. Yeah, especially since Chaplin is very cartoony. They're kind of acting in a similar space. Right. The humor in cartoons like Steamboat Willie and movies like Modern Times are very similar. Right. It's why the assembly line translates so well to Dufour's face. Right. So then the last thing they do is he tucks her into bed in the bedding aisle. And oh, he says, also feeds her a bunch of cake from the food section of the oh, department right. store. Which, gross, that food should not be just out. Because I assume it means that they are planning to serve the cake that is just sitting out the next day. You know they did that. I know, it's so gross. Now that I actually work in a, like, food-related industry, I watch movies and I'm just like, gross. 
gross, gross, whenever people do anything. So the gammon is excited to be around. She's having a great time. Remember, she is a gammon. So like, this is her getting food. That's great. Chaplin takes her up to the bedding section and it's like, here, sleep in this bed for the night. This is awesome for her. They're like kind of flirting, but also kind of just looking out for each other. They're both poor people in the depression. Yeah, so he's like, oh, I'll wake you up before the store opens. But then some robbers come in. And Chaplin, the tramp, just kind of falls in with the robbers because they say, oh, no, we're not robbers. We're just here to get food and get something to drink. It's the depression. Well, they get him drunk on accident first. Right. Because they smash a giant beer keg. Right. So he's standing. They're trying to get him to, like, stand still, essentially. So they have him facing a rum barrel. And they shoot it. So you see a bunch of rum just shoot into his mouth. And then, oh, he's drunk. And that's how he ends up falling in with them. And then he falls asleep in a pile of toys. Yeah. And the next morning you see the gammon like wake up in the bed. Like the store's open. Why am I still here? Can't find the tramp. And then you see the tramp pulled out of a stack of clothing. Here's the deal. Who among us has not had too much rum and then fallen asleep in a pile of toys? I mean, me. Really? Yeah, I mean, you every time go to bed technically fall asleep into a pile of toys based on your bedroom, but... Okay, but they're not on my bed. Okay. I fall asleep surrounded by the love of a bunch of toys. If you say so. And I say goodnight to each one individually. Goodnight, Lotso Huggin' Bear. Goodnight, Superior Spider-Man. This is why... Goodnight, Kermit the Frog. This is why you don't get enough sleep. Yeah, it's like Goodnight Moon, but everyone is a fictional character staring at me. Goodnight, Jesse the Yodeling Cowgirl. All right, cool. But he gets fired, as you can imagine. Well, he gets arrested. And then arrested. And that takes us to point number three, then. Because ten days later, he gets out, because that's how long you spend in jail. Ten days. Ten days. Every time. So he gets out of jail after ten days, and she meets him. So now we're fully in, like... These two are, like, really flirting with each other. They're not just looking out for each other. They're like, we're gonna be cutesy together. But it still feels kind of like kids playing a house. Definitely. It's almost like a ramshackle hut that you build yourself out of, like, a cardboard box in the backyard. Oh, for sure. So she, when he gets out of jail, is like, guess what? I've found us a home. And he's like, great. And so they walk, and they're in this just shack along a river. And it looks like it's falling apart. The roof is falling in. Yeah, it's close to the um, industrial part of town. Right. I don't know what this house was. A disaster. Yeah. I was thinking about this. Look, it is the Depression, so it's nice to have any shelter. But it would be a bummer to get out of jail and your partner's like, we've got a house now. And you're like, great. And then you go and you're like, usually roofs cover the whole house. But on the other hand... Still better than in the 1976 Star is Born, you get married and your new husband is like, I'm taking you to our house. And you get there and it's just a patch of dirt with string around it. That you are expected to build yourself. For your honeymoon. I still can't get over that. So still, rather date the gammon than Chris Christopherson in that movie. What I find really funny is that even though they have a house, she sleeps inside and then he's put in like a little hut to the side of the house. Basically a, like a doghouse. Yeah, he is put in a doghouse. because he's they're in not a doghouse. Because they are not married. Well, we've already got the nose candy. We can't push the code too much in this movie. Right. But then he goes for a swim. And by that, I mean he jumps into the river, but it's a foot deep. He jumps off a pier. 
Yeah. That's the thing. It's not like he walks into the water and is expecting to swim. He walks off a pier and jumps in, and it's up to his ankles. And then they hear that the factories have opened again. Oh, but before that, they eat their sandwiches. Oh, yeah. You know I love sandwiches. Sandwiches are the pinnacle of culinary excellence, Mark. Did you know there's never been a food better than the sandwich? Sure. It's because sandwiches are their own container. If you're in a hurry, you can take a sandwich and not need a plate or a bunch of silverware or anything like that. You've just got a sandwich. A sandwich can be any combination of food groups. It can be an entire meal unto itself. Sandwiches are incredible. Or in this movie, it can be mostly bread. A loaf of bread cut in half with maybe a thing in the middle, but I think it might just be bread. There's definitely something between there, but they're basically shoving two giant pieces of bread into their mouth. Yeah, the bread takes up about the same space as from the tip of your nose to the bottom of your chin, with your mouth open. And they are gamely trying to shove it into their face. It's pretty yes. great. But then on the radio, they hear that the factories have opened again, so the tramp runs to get rehired at a new place. Right, because he wants to be able to get them a better home. He winds up getting fired from that place, too, because he's accidentally organizing a socialist movement again. Yeah, he also uh, is not good at his job. No, he's very bad at it. Yeah, he smashes multiple things. He is just a disaster constantly crashing into things. And then, like I said, he falls into this socialist revolution. The tramp engages in class conflict like Forrest Gump would. Like, he's just wandering through his life and every once in a while stumbles into something and has a weirdly, bizarrely significant contribution. Yeah, that's exactly how he handles the labor movement of 1936. He just, like, keeps winding up as a leader. Yeah, so he goes back to jail. For 10 days. For 10 days. But while he's there, the gammon gets hired as a dancer at a nightclub. Yep, so by the time he gets out this time, this is point number four. She's looking great. She's got a big hat. She's got a purse. She's got these nice clothes now because she has a job and she's getting paid. Yeah. So she picks him up she from jail this time. She looks great in this outfit. She does. Love the hat. Yeah. So this time she picks him up from jail and takes him to the nightclub and is just like, this is a guy that I think should work here. She tells him when he gets out, she's like, I've got you a job. And is able to get him hired as a waiter in part thanks to the letter saying he's a good dude. Please give him a job. That right. he got several arrests ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he gets hired as a waiter at this place but the head waiter is going to want him to sing as well yes but that comes after he screws up as a waiter when he's holding a meal over his head but all the dancers come on the floor and he just keeps going in circles around the dance floor and so then every time he makes it to the table he doesn't have the food he just has empty plates because the food has fallen off right and the guy gets mad and instead of firing him on the spot, the head waiter's just like, well, I hope you can sing. And then he performs the song and dance number. Yeah, well, first the gammon is helping him out. She helps him practice. She writes the lyrics on his cuff. But then when he's singing, something's wrong with his jacket and he can't see the cuff. So he just makes up nonsense French and Italian sounding lyrics. It's really funny and odd. <laughs> it's a very strange song, but it is pretty funny. Yeah. And it's cool here in the final film he appears in as the tramp to hear Chaplin's voice. Yeah. And so while this so is happening- So for the moment, they have kind of reached- What they want. Their triumph, right. They both have jobs. They're making good money. They're getting to express art, which mm -hmm. is cool. But while this is happening, you see the cops are starting to look for the gammon to arrest her for truancy. Right. And because so that takes us to point number five. 
where the cops show up. Here's what I like about their file on the gammon. They have a photo. They have a description of her. They have this charge of truancy and vagrancy because she's a ward of the state. I love that the photo on her file is very clearly Paulette Godard's headshot. It's like a woman looking into the distance, leaning on her hand. But doesn't it have the three finger-shaped lines of dirt on her face? I'm not convinced that they didn't have somebody streak those onto one of her headshots. Yeah, possibly. The gammon, whenever she is in her gammon form, the only thing they do is it looks clearly exactly the shape of her fingers. Three lines, two under one eye, one under the other, of dirt, in quotes. Which is bizarre because Chaplin clearly understands how to do makeup. Yeah, but it's just the least commitment to making someone look like a gammon. It's like Robin Hood levels. The gammon. Yeah. So she gets arrested now, but instead of actually going with that, she and the tramp just run away. And they start running and running and running as fast as they can. You can't catch them. They're the gammon and the tramp. Yes. And they hit a point where she's ready to give up. She's like, we can't do it. We're never going to make it. This is too much. But the tramp convinces her. He says, you know, just buck up, smile. Things are going to get better. Which is an interestingly optimistic ending for this movie about how the machinery of industry swallows people whole. You are correct. But that gets back to some of those arguments that Chaplin was having with Gandhi while he was developing this movie in Europe. Mm. Where he had this pretty extensive debate with Gandhi where Gandhi is saying industrialization is just happening in a way that is destroying everybody it touches. Whereas Chaplin was trying to say, well, if you did it humanely, it's not so bad. Right. And so we have the kind of, as the German government put it, communist tendencies throughout the film. But some of the compassion that the Tramp and the Gammon show each other can give each other new opportunities and a chance to buck up. Right. And so they walk off into the sunset just down the road. And that's the end. Yeah. As it tells us on screen. Although, they did shoot an alternate ending. Oh no. Where, at the nightclub... The tramp winds up getting in a fight and is hospitalized. And while he is in the hospital, the gammon, to avoid going to jail, joins a convent. And so they end apart with him in the hospital and her in the convent. That sounds almost as good as the alternate ending to Sweet Home Alabama. No, the alternate ending to Sweet Home Alabama is funnier. Yeah, I said almost. That That is the best alternate ending of any movie I have seen. Faking the death into a wedding. Yep. Perfect. But this was something where they were like, maybe this is too much of a bummer. Yeah, I could always tell that this was a type of movie to end happily, even as the themes it's discussing are more intense than what the humor on screen is showing. Which I think makes those themes a little bit more palatable as well. Right, I agree with that. The Tramp is like the gears that he slides between. He is himself kind of a gear in this machine, but he's the gear that smiles and has a good time. Yeah, it's definitely about the fact that, like, modern times are swallowing our humanity whole. Like, that is the point of this movie. But it still has a happy ending. Yeah, I think it does it really well. It's quite funny. It is. It's a, a lot of the physical comedy still very funny. And so, again, as we said last week, if you are at all intrigued by it, you can check it out on Canopy. That's Canopy with a K. You can get on there for free using your library card. It's a good use of an hour and a half. It's also a good reason to finally convince yourself to get a library card. <laughs> yeah, if you don't, if you have, don't one. have one. So after watching all of this, do you find the romance between the tramp and the gammon believable? Not really. It's only kind of a romance. I think that idea of it's more two fairly childish people kind of playing house, really. Yeah, it's definitely 
interesting because they know each other for 10 minutes before basically they both get arrested and then they move in together once he's out of jail. Which is partially a factor of them both being homeless. Right. And their meeting is him helping her out. Now, he has a selfish motive, i.e. he wants to go to jail. Right. But from her perspective, this is a guy who, when she is isolated, having been orphaned, he helps her out in a pretty crucial moment. Yeah, so they definitely uh, help each other out, but it moves very quickly for the amount of time that their relationship spends in jail. (laughs) Well, units of 10 days, sure. Yeah, only 10 days at a time. And it really doesn't seem like they visit each other when one is in jail, because the gamut is always waiting outside, like around the corner. (laughs) Right. So I'm going to go with not that believable. So where are you going to rate it on our 10-point scale, where zero is totally unbelievable and 10 is 100% accurate? This is a real romance. Probably like a five. I think I'm lower. (laughs) Yeah. I might be at a four. I think I'm going to give it a four. Yeah. There's some nice stuff in there, but... It's not even a real romance, almost. Right, It's barely, and it's not trying to be, so it doesn't really matter. Uh, do you think these two are dateable? No. Not really. The gammon seems nice enough. I'm not sure how old she's supposed to be. She's still a truant of the state. Yeah, so that's a red flag. Yeah, but, I mean, the actress is clearly, like... She's 21. 21, and looks it. But also, I think the character might be supposed to be younger. I think she definitely is. Creepy? Yes. So that's a big no. And then the tramp is not a human. (laughs) Like, the tramp is just not really meant to be a normal human. Right, he's a weirdo cartoon character. Right, so that's kind of a turnoff for me. I'm sorry. If you did have to pick one person in the movie to date, though, who would it be? Oh, I didn't think about this. This is a (laughs) tough question, because everyone seems kind of... I mean, like, he's a bad person, but the scientist who makes the feeding machine is pretty funny. I'm going to go with the uh, shopkeeper that finds the tramp inside the pile of toys. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I think I'm going to go with the stuffed Mickey Mouse, who is the only person in this movie I actually like. (laughs) Good choice. Do you think the tramp and the gammon would stay together? Who knows? Honestly, they'll be dead within a year. Yeah, they're going to get hit by a bus, just like the gammon's dad. Yeah. I think that about does it for this movie. Okay, next week, though, we're doing something that I am really excited about in an episode that is certain to be on the long end. We're doing the 2003 Disney epic adventure film Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl. You've all seen it. You all love it. Get excited. It's going to be great. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. It helps other people to find the show. Last question. What's the best piece of dating advice you got from this movie? Um, The big thing I picked up on was eat a lot of food and then don't pay for it, but wave to the cops. I would say go to jail, but don't go to jail for a long period of time. Go to jail multiple times, but for 10 days at a time. Can't go wrong there. Until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye-bye. Bye.